Welcome to the Epidemic Bell Fast podcast. My name is Rebecca Brown and I am a PhD researcher at Ulster University. Epidemic Belfast is a medical history learning resource developed by researchers from Ulster University's School of History. On today's podcast, we are interviewing Dr. Laura Newman, a historian of medicine, science and education and a postdoctoral research associate based at Wellcome, funded addressing health, morbidity, mortality and occupational health in the Victorian and Edwardian Post Office project at King's College London. So Laura, welcome to today's podcast episode. Hello, Rebecca. Thanks so much for inviting me. So we have a couple of questions here. So first, um, so what are the broader goals and aims of the Dresden Health Project? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Um, so this project I've been involved now from the start, we're about two years in. Uh, we're funded by the Wellcome Trust and we take a kind of place across a, f- a few different universities. So I'm at King's, but we have colleagues at UCL and Derby as well who work on the project with us. And there are kind of three important kind of conceptual strands or like areas of interest to our project, uh, which is morbidity, mortality and occupational health, as the very long title of the project (laughs) might suggest. Um, But the way in which we see our project as quite unique is um, when historians of medicine in the past have often tried to look at, you know, understanding health and health outcomes in historical populations, they often just looked at mortality. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to tie in morbidity with mortality because the post office has a really rich data set on uh, stuff like sick leave and reasons for people retiring and so on. So one part of the project I'm very much involved in is tracing the long-term health outcomes of uh, post office retirees who retired in the census years from 1861 to 1901. And what makes this project really great for people interested in, you know, the health of past populations is the post office was one of the largest employers in this period. But it was not just because one of the largest, it was also one of the most diverse. And because of that, there's a real breadth and depth to these sources. Um, there's lots of ways to carve the data up and answer questions about gender and age, but also really importantly for us, geography, which is why I'm really excited to talk about uh, the case of Northern Ireland with you here today. And just a little brief promotion point, we have our data mapper up and running on our website where you could look at retirements of uh, different post office pensioners over time Um, and to any budding historians of medicine at any stage of their career who are listening to this and want to use that data please do feel free to get in touch with us because we'd love to help you on it we'd love to help anyone with this data because it's just so rich and kind of diverse. So what Pacific trends have you picked up about Northern Irish pensioners from your data thus far? Yeah, uh, that's uh, interesting. So um, a general disclaimer I have to put here is we're dealing with quite small numbers. So we have to be cautious about our results. So it's more suggestive rather than definitive. And we're sort of still in the process of tidying the data and all those wonderful tasks involved when you have uh, lots of spreadsheets and databases you know, which is uh, sometimes feel a bit of a slog. Um, um, so from 1860 to 1902, we only have 199 pensioners from uh, what is now Northern Ireland. Uh, and that's around 15% of all our Irish pensioners or about 1% of our pensioner sample. So with that disclaimer, I'm kind of going to go through the provisional kind of results we've seen. 
So our data shows that thus far, uh, the post office workings in Ireland took the most time off out of all our cohort. So um, Scotland, Scottish post office workers took the least time off, whereas what we've seen is Ireland's Irish post workers take the most time off. And we have a number of hypotheses for this. So like one explanation is that Irish post office workers uh, were not in as great shape as their Scottish and English and Welsh counterparts. Another explanation is, did they have a different understanding of what constituted sickness or capacity, incapacity? So that's kind of like a cultural question. And another question is, were there higher levels of medical surveillance in Ireland? Because the post office employed a number of medical officers to kind of oversee the health of, uh, health of their employees. Um, what's interesting about the Northern Irish data though, is that the workers took less time off uh, because as a whole, the cohort is dominated by occupations in our sample that generally took less time off. And these are postmen. Um, and so about over half of our workforce in Northern Ireland are made up of postmen. Um, so we have relatively few numbers of people who were like doing office work or indoor work. So like telegraphists and so on. So straight away, we're dealing with quite a complex occupational category. So postmen did a lot of different things. They actually had a lot of different duties and they were based in both towns, uh, busy bustling cities and like the most remote village you can imagine. Um, and so incorporated a lot of different duties, working patterns and working environments and so on. Um, so our data so far suggests a slight health differential and post-retirement longevity. Um, on the whole, our Northern Irish cohorts seem to live slightly less longer after retirement uh, versus the rest of Ireland and England and Wales. And they also seem to more likely retire due to reasons of ill health. So because you could retire for reasons of age, for example, that was quite common. But it seems so far what we can see is that Northern Irish Postal workers were more likely to retire due to sickness or a health condition. What's also interesting, and here I want to circle back to Belfast because of the title of this podcast, obviously, is um, we've noticed with our Northern Irish data, there are higher, there's higher amounts of sick leave in Belfast versus the rest of Northern Ireland. And this uh, actually really neatly mirrors uh, uh, the trend we've seen with England versus London, the rest of England versus London. Um, so what we see is high levels of sickness, uh, like sick uh, time off being taken with uh, indoor occupations. So these are like the indoor office workers, right? Um, not, not purely office workers, but it sometimes helps think of like this kind of white collar divide, right? Um, versus, you know, outdoor workers, so people who were, you know, postmen. Um, so the thing that we have to ask here from like a historical geography standpoint is what were the were there any kind of stresses that particularly came with urban living and urban working that can explain that differential? And because I'm not a historian of Irish medicine, um, it's been really great actually preparing for this podcast, like actually getting somewhat familiar with a new historiography and came across, uh, I'm probably mispronouncing this, but Morgan's book on the cost of insanity in Ireland and she has this really great chapter on um, the link between occupational stress and asylum admittance in Ireland and this idea of male anxiety. And she talks a lot about clerks as well, which is uh, so that really connects well with our data because we had a lot of clerks, indoor workers and so on. So that's really interesting that we're already finding like resonances with the existing historiography. 
That sounds really, really interesting, Laura. So do you want to tell me a wee bit now about tuberculosis in the North? Yes, um, anyone who knows my work or just knows me personally knows that I talk about TB quite a lot. Um, yeah, it's it's my jam, so to speak. Um, uh, but yeah, we have been finding very interesting stuff about TB in the Northern Irish data, so I'm not just shoehorning it in. Um, so what we find with the Northern Irish data is there's really quite a high number of retirements from TB, uh, higher than the rest of Ireland and England, uh, Wales. And this is interesting because one of the hypotheses of the project so far has been that indoor workers, so people working in buildings for like hours at a time, you know, often with not great ventilation and so forth, our assumption to a degree has been, well, they must have been more susceptible to TB because TB, you know, is, is a bacterial disease. And, you know, we know from COVID that poor ventilation uh, often, you know, facilitates uh, the spread of microorganisms, uh, like disease microorganisms. Um, but the Northern Irish data complicates that because we don't have many indoor workers in Northern Ireland, but we have quite high rates of TB. Um, and it's interesting thinking about how this accords with what we know about the continuing uh, high rates of tuberculosis in Ireland. So, you know, um, while the rates are dropping in England, Wales and Scotland, in amongst our Irish cohort, we're, we're seeing probably slightly disproportionately high numbers of TB. Um, it also means that our Northern Irish cohort tended not to live as long after they retired because our data thus far shows that although we know TB can be a very slow acting disease, uh, what our data is showing so far that people who retired because of explicitly because of TB tended to die very quickly. So it maybe suggests that they're at a relatively advanced stage of the disease by the time they choose to retire or are made to retire. Um, and I guess I wanted to, I, th I think what's interesting here is thinking about how we need to maybe diversify our understanding of TB etiology in the past and think about other risk factors at play here, like housing and diet amongst our cohort. But this is obviously from a, Kind of practical standpoint this is something that's a lot harder for us to do because it's much much harder for us to follow people outside of the workplace and into their homes i mean I'll, we'll talk a bit later about how we've tried to do that a little bit um so it's really hard when you're talking about occupational health to like have a holistic approach to it and think about like you know the workplace is just one part one dimension to someone's health right they're like their health journey or so that you might say even though that sounds a bit kooky. Um, and I think what's interesting here is if we kind of try and decenter or move away from thinking about TB as just a primarily urban disease, we recognize the raw dimension of TB in history. Um, that's something that I think maybe potentially, uh, I mean, we'll see if we, we get around to doing this, but thinking about histories of occupational health in Ireland and how we can diversify and add to that canon with a specifically kind of rural focus on um, occupational health, which is interesting, right? Um, also diversifying our understanding of workplace TB. So it has like a really rightful place in the history of Belfast as a disease of like manufacturing and like in the textile factories in particular. But again, there's really scope here for perhaps not us, but anyone who's interested, again, signaling here, anyone who wants to work on this, thinking about what was the white collar experience of TB in Belfast. And, you know, here you can draw on a really interesting like growing historiography on, on, on bourgeois Belfast, which I've sort of like 
dipped my toes into a little bit, but not enough, I think, to, to, to qualify me to write on this. Um, so yeah, thank you for letting me talk on TV. <laughs> that sounds like a really interesting bit of research that you're trying to do now and start. Um, so would you like to tell us a wee bit about stories of uh, NI postal workers from your U3A research and shared learning project? Yeah, thank you so much, Rebecca. Um, so as a project, we've worked really extensively with uh, the University of the Third Age in both the UK and Northern Ireland. Uh, for those not in the know, uh, U3A is the largest adult learning um, organisation in the UK. Um, it's a, co a cooperative model and it, uh, its membership is made up of people who have retired. So this idea that the third age of learning is after you've, you know, you, you've stopped, stopped uh, your, your participation in the workforce, at least formally. And, you know, there's a chance for like you to learn lots of new and exciting and different things. Um, so we approached U3A, um, you have a existing model of working with um, universities and other research bodies through something called a research and shared learning project. So what we decided to do was um, uh, recruit U3A members from uh, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Southwest England to conduct a collective biography of post office workers who retired in 1901. Um, because that's the first year that census results are available for Ireland, Scotland and England and Wales altogether. Um, so yeah, um, I just really like to point to um, our website uh, where we've now got all the stories of these poster workers up, uh, free to use, free to look at. And um, we've got a number of stories that relate to post office workers from Belfast. Um, and some really interesting themes that have come out through the work that our U3A participants did. Um, so really kind of delving into these stories in a way that we didn't particularly have time for. And because they had expertise in doing Irish family history and genealogical research in a way I didn't, um, you know, it's really allowed these like very interesting stories to come to life. Uh, the problem is is when you're working a project with a lot of data sometimes like the the people behind the data can kind of tend to be seem like a homogenous mass after a while so that was one of the really kind of key aims of this project um so just a signal for anyone interested in thinking about um you know uh how we can use family history methodology to think more broadly about social history in ireland and some themes uh we got a lot of commonalities between these stories, which are all in um, PDF form. So you can download and save them if you so wish and read them on the tube on your commute, um, if that's if that's your jam. Um, so we've got stuff like, uh, we've got lots of work that talks about rural urban migration to Belfast, for example. Uh, we've got stuff that looks at religion, uh, land reform, uh, immigration, because often uh, what our participants would do is they look really deep into the family history. So we would see, you know, what happened to their children and so on. Also intergenerational post office employment, something that's really interesting. So seeing fathers and sons and even grandfathers who were all in the post office. Um, and also something interesting that uh, some of our participants drew out was like the changing work of like a uh, role of like workhouse provision in Ireland and, and kind of uh, providing like um, hospital care and medical care and stuff. So that's a really interesting theme 
slightly more pertinent to the history of medicine. But yeah, I would just encourage uh, everyone to go have a look uh, on our website, which is addressinghealth.org.uk, where you can look at these stories um, of Irish postal workers from 1901 that was done by our fantastic U3A team. Um, Laura, could you tell us a wee bit about working with Ballymoney Museum and the life of William Moore? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one of the aims of our kind of public engagement strand of our research, which I've been involved in quite a bit, was finding museums to partner with to tell new stories about health and um, working life in the post office. So I came across a kind of accident and a, a kind of a serendipity came across um, the a page on Bally Money Museum's website about uh, a bag they had um, at, that belonged to a private postman. So I have to signal here he was not in the post office called William Moore and William Moore was a blind man. And immediately I felt there was scope here to do something really interesting with this bag um, because there was quite minimal interpretation around this bag. Um, so I got in touch with Bally Money Museum where I found out they'd actually worked extensively before with uh, RNIB to conduct a social history of blindness and sight loss in Northern Ireland. That's a really fantastic book, by the way, that's like free online. I would really uh, recommend it to anyone. I've sadly forgotten its name. I think it's called Making Sense of the Past, but it's a fantastic bit of work and really a great example of co-curation, right? Like between... Um, you know, people who have um, lived experience of sight loss in uh, Northern Ireland today and historians and, and so forth. Um, so we knew that they had these this audience they'd worked with before. Um, and what we really wanted to do is we wanted to enhance accessibility around the bag because there was no way for people with sight loss to access knowledge about the bag. Um, so what we did is we held a two-day workshop where we invited um, some museum users with sight loss um, to work with us uh, using a series of talks but also handling workshops where we would then go on to try and uh, co-write a audio description of the bag for future use. Um, there's also thrown up lots of interesting questions, the life of William Moore for me and a new research strand that's developed from looking at him. Because although he wasn't employed by the post office, what I have found is evidence of actually a lot of people with sight loss who um, were, were employed by the post office in some way or another. Um, so there's a very interesting history there, which I'm sure you'd know a lot more about Rebecca uh, than I. Um, about um, blindness and work, which is really interesting because the historiography on blindness and labour history that I've seen thus far, and it's actually quite well developed for Ireland, it's very much tended to focus on like the workshop model of like uh, blindness provision. So like the one in, Bel in Belfast, for example, really famous. It hasn't tended to focus on you know, these non-institutional, like the, the, this away from this like workshop, low kind of like semi-skilled manual labor um, kind of career pathways and into other things as well. So yeah, that's a short, I, I think it was short, praise to hear of what we did with the work of William Moore, which has really opened up new avenues for us as a project. Have you found much about dairy and post office workers? Um, so we haven't found much, 
nothing that I can recall to mind specifically about dairy from our data. I think in our um, collective biography of 1901 pensioners, we do have some, uh, some workers from dairy. But excitingly thinking about the history of blind postmen, I do have a, um, I have anecdote, I have like one newspaper article and it's maddening because I can't find anything else about this. Uh, prior to the union, uh, the 1801 union, there's, there was a man called Andy Carr, who was a blind postman in Derry. Um, and there's a really very short newspaper article about him um, and how he um, used to keep the letters between his fingers and he memorized who they were for. But then if he got mixed up, uh, the people of Derry would, would, um, would uh, sort them out for him. I've just remembered uh, this was at the time of the Wolf Tone Rebellion. That's, that's it. Um, so yeah, uh, Andy Carr, and when I appeared on the BBC about William Orr on a BBC uh, foil and uh, the radio show, and I appealed for anyone who might have had information about Andy Carr, and sadly no one's come forward. Uh, so I don't know if he's a bit of a boogeyman, a bit of a myth, but yeah, he is what sticks out when you ask me about Derry. <laughs> so could we talk a wee bit more about how William Orr and other blind postmen managed to do their job? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've got a f we've got like bits of evidence that I'm sort of working to piece together to form a picture about the kind of various what we might anachronistically call disability aids, um, how they were used by blind and partially sighted postmen. Um, and I think what's interesting here is thinking about the relative absence of a lot of these technologies that you might expect to find. Um, so for example, walking sticks or canes, um, I actually find in a lot of these uh, stories about blind and partially sighted postmen that what's often notable in these stories is people talk about they didn't use a cane, right? So the fact that they seem to know their landscape so intimately that they didn't need a way marking tool is something that's like of note to um to like commentators which is interesting um another other tools they used um i've come across examples of uh them using dogs uh sometimes uh to help lead them um and what's interesting about this and if anyone knows of any historiography on this i can't find really anything on the history of blind and partially sighted people using dogs prior to the kind of the advent of the, the sight, the seeing dogs for the blind movement. I, I cannot find anything on there. I found instances of talking about how some blind and partially sighted people trained their own dogs or trained dogs for others. So if anyone knows anything about that, that'd be great. Um, then, uh, so talking, we talked about canes, uh, dogs, um, what else uh, has there been? Oh, interestingly thinking, uh, came across one example of a man who had a horn that he carried around his neck, which he would use to signal to people at the end of the street to come and collect their post. So, you know, that was another way in which he kind of dealt with like the practicalities of delivering uh, the mail. And other, probably the most consistent thing that's come across in these accounts is, um, is detailing how the postman memorized which letters would go where. And this plays a lot into um, 
his contemporary ideas about uh, sense substitution amongst the blind and this idea that um, they had these incredible powers of memory that resulted from, you know, their, their loss of sight. And, um, but what comes across in these accounts is our details of these men uh, putting the letters in between their fingers in a certain way or in their bag in a certain order and memorizing who they were going to. So we received verbal instruction from a postmaster or postmistress. Um, and then they would like know where to, uh, to give these letters to. Um, so I've come across Irish, blind Irish postman, a guy in Wexford who did that um, and come across Derbyshire and William Moore in particular, a lot of what we did with him was try and figure out when we were thinking of the bag, we were thinking about, you know, well, how much did the inner archeology span of the bag help him in his work? How much did that help him to, you know, know where, which letters went where and so forth. And thinking about things like messenger or poster bags as kind of reframing them as disability aids um, in a way and, and kind of the conceptual problems that come with that uh, as well. Um, you know, because where, when, does, when do you stop classifying things as disability aids when you're thinking about reconstructing a blind or partially sighted person's life, you know? Um, but yeah, it was a fun idea to play around with. That all sounds really, really interesting. Uh, that was all so interesting. Thank you so much, Laura, for joining us today in Epidemic Belfast. Oh, that's fine. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um,